Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome everybody to episode 126 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes. Joining me is Will Berkman, as always, and joining us today is Sam Hall. Hello. Where's the applause, Will? Oh shit! Sorry, oh, I thought you were gonna no. like. I thought you were gonna like really <laughs> plug him, and then I do the applause. One second, Sam Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Bit better. Yeah, bit better. Yeah, it, it almost feels more genuine now. Than yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. gonna say that was straight from the heart. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I was about to intro you, Sam, but I'll actually let you do it um, because you'll probably do a much better job than I will. So could you just let the people know uh, who you are and what you're doing here? This is sure. Alex's softballing approach when he's like, shit, I don't actually know who we invited on this week. Because gonna... you did yeah. organize this one, didn't you, Alex? I'm I like, do, yes, I, I don't know this guy. Um, yeah, Sam, um, please introduce yourself. Go yeah, on. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, yeah, obviously, my name is Sam. That's pretty much obvious at this point. But um, I, I, I live in Adelaide, I uh, run a gym, I'm a strength coach, I've been coaching for the last seven years, uh, actually got into coaching over in Canada, formerly a stage two uh, English and history teacher, and then yeah, decided that I didn't want to do that anymore and have been strength coaching, um, yeah, like I said, last seven years, um, run my own education program, give seminars. I've been fortunate enough to speak at a global event too, which was terrifying. So yeah, I I guess, you know, I I work with people, I work with coaches and I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure. So that was actually a lot better than uh, the intro that I had written down. So well done. The thing that you, (laughs) the thing, the two things you missed out were that you're actually a powerlifter as well. Oh yeah, I do uh, lift, lift weights for sport. And uh, I also wrote a great bloke, so you forgot that bit too. I did. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to call myself a great bloke. I feel like it's probably better to come from other people. That's fair. I think that's yeah. fair. So you mentioned it in your intro. Um, you were a teacher before you got into the fitness industry. So what made you mm. want to go into teaching? Um, I, I, there's a there's a couple of things, right? Where it's like. Everybody, I, I think everybody has a couple of teachers that you really specifically remember from when you were growing up that were awesome and a couple of teachers that you remember from when you were growing up that sucked and you hated them. And I still remember their names, right? So Mr. Inkster, awesome. Mr. Pasco, not about it. So I've actually heard that Mr. I, Pasco I, is a, an avid weekly weights listener, so he's going to be very unhappy. I hope he is. He ins- <laughs> you inspired me, Mr. Pasco, just for the wrong reasons. And, um, you, you know, it's like you, you see the sort of passivity with some teachers, and I don't blame them, right, because teaching's a tough gig, and I think if you've been doing it for a really long time, I can understand uh, at some point you, you're probably just kind of ticking a box and, and collecting a paycheck. Like, it is a tough gig. So, you know, I, I saw some passivity in certain teachers that I didn't love as a student. And when I saw, you know, real like passion and energy from other teachers that had been doing it equally as long or longer and just simply loved what they did. And I just remember, 
you know, it's like both sides of the coin. It's like how much you can energize people and how much you can drain them. And for me, I, I wanted to be a teacher because I went to school on the upper air peninsula for a lot of my schooling, like in Sejuna and uh, an area school called Miltabara, which only had like, I don't know, like a hundred kids in it. And I wanted to go back and teach in country schools because I, I just wanted to be that inspiring teacher and let people know, like, if you want to get out of a country town, you know, if you want to stay, you can stay, but if you want to get out, you can get out. And there's so many things that you can do and there's so many things that you can offer. And I just felt like I really wanted to give back. Like I, I had the opportunity to give back. I, I had the opportunity to make some kids lives better by doing that. And I, I, I just wanted to do it. And, you know, I, I just have always felt this sort of need to help people in some regard. Um, and I, I was always drawn to teaching because of my experience with those teachers. There's something deeply satisfying when you teach people something. And I've found this both in coaching, lifting weights, in running a mentorship. And previously mm -hmm. when I used to teach drums and guitar, when you take a concept that is either unfamiliar to somebody or quite abstract, and you get that moment where it begins to click and mm. you can almost see their mind expanding in front of you. There's something in that that is satisfying in a way that you can't quite get doing almost anything else. There's like, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very powerful and, and quite compelling feeling. And it's one that you almost continue to chase because it just feels so good to convey information to other people. And maybe there's something evolutionary in it. You know, maybe it's mm. why, parents want to convey lessons to their kids and why we're such social creatures, but it like, it really just does feel good to help people learn stuff. Yeah. And I think like seeing people get that bit of belief about themselves, you know, it's like, I don't know, man, like, especially with, with kids, I think that they cop a pretty bad rap. I mean, they're always told that they're being lazy and they're good for nothing. And I think just when you can take the time to sit there and help them overcome something whether that be like i'm not you know like i don't know like tricking them into learning shakespeare by showing them the lion king and stuff like that and they're like oh i get it now you're like yes like you know uh, i don't think necessarily shakespeare will be something that you can use later in life but like your ability to think critically and sort of read between the lines and things is certainly something that you use read between the lions them. even yeah <laughs> oh sir and you know, I, I just think that that's like so crucial is like give them confidence and give them that belief and, and let them let them go anywhere they want with it. But yeah, it's, it just seems kind of shitty to me to, I don't know, like give up on people. Uh, I just can't handle it. I'd, I'd rather work with people and, until they get something. When I'm going to plug my other podcast on this one, cause it's got a bigger, <laughs> bigger listenership. One, <laughs> one of the, so everybody's got to unsubscribe from weekly weights, go over to delving deeper. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do delving deeper, um, that I think probably relates to why teaching something like history or English would be interesting is that there's also something really satisfying in sort of realizing how interesting the world is around you. Like you mm -hmm. say, you're not going to use Shakespeare. And it's probably true, but at the same time, when you like, when you realize, you know, that the taming of the shrew has been adapted in 10 things I hate about you, 
or you know, a Midsummer Night's right. Dream is um, is she's the man or whatever, and you start realizing, yeah, how pervasive these ideas are in popular culture, mm-hmm. how many how many sort of little idioms draw from Shakespeare, all these little things. When you start looking around you and you go like, wow, the world is more interesting by virtue of me knowing this. And the same is true for so many things in history. I think mm-hmm. that's really wonderful too. And you sort of like, it's very easy to float through life with all this wonderful stuff around you that you almost miss because you just, your eyes aren't open to it. And again, when you have somebody who shows you that wonder around you, like, yeah, it might not always have utility, but sometimes it's just nice to, to sort of be at awe at what's around you, you know? Yeah. I think there's also something really like in English, like I was, I was always big on English. That was, that was my main thing. And how I describe, how I describe it still is that like, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of unifying. I don't think you need to be burying your head in books. Like English exists in a lot of different ways. It's like just how we communicate. If you want to do it through TV or, or music or whatever it is, there's, there's some level of it. But someone has experienced something that you are experiencing and you can feel quite isolated and alone, but they've probably captured it in this way that just like so deeply and profoundly resonates with you that it, it's like, you're not alone. Like some, someone is experiencing this. I remember reading um, uh, high anxiety. No, 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 no. What is it? Nick Hornby, high fidelity, high fidelity. I remember reading high fidelity. I was like, holy crap. Like this book is just like everything to me. And yeah, it was a really great moment. And I just, yeah, like giving that to other people in the same way that like, you know, you work in mentorships or you work as a coach you're able to give that to other people um, through a lot of different mediums. You're able to give them that like sense of victory on the platform that they might not have experienced in their lives or that understanding of movement that just suddenly unlocks so many different pathways for them. You know, it, it's just, it's the best. When I was at school, um, I, I went to quite a large and very well-appointed school in Sydney and we had a gym. And we had a guy who was there permanently as a strength coach. Um, But we also had a few teachers who lifted weights. Mm -hmm. And by the time you're in year 9, 10, 11, you knew the teachers who were jacked and strong because the the boys would walk around school and be like, like, you wouldn't fucking believe it. I saw Mr. Tate repping 120 kilos on the bench. Shout outs to Mr. Tate. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he ran the summer conditioning program. It was formally called summer conditioning, but everyone just called it Tate's Weights. Um, and <laughs> that guy, he was actually one of the funniest people I've ever I've ever known in my life because he was a maths teacher and he played a character the entire time he was at school, which was the extremely stern disciplinarian. He would scream at kids. Um, but it was always tongue in cheek. And so the other teachers were in on the bit, Um, but he never let up the whole time, but he would do things that were just absurd enough that you knew he was trolling. So he had some (laughs) Latvian heritage and he used to say that the Latvian national anthem was the most inspiring, most inspiring piece of music on earth. So when we had to do tests in class time, he would make the class stand up and put their hand on their heart while he played (laughs) the Latvian national anthem. And he would scream. We had this building called Benefactors that was five stories tall. And he would scream at people in his classroom and slap the ruler on the desk so hard that he broke the ruler always. But you could hear him from two levels up. And he would be saying the most ridiculous things. But because he was carrying it off with this, he was bald-headed, 
bobbly eyes and things. He would carry it off with such intensity and conviction that if you're in the classroom, you would be shitting it. But you could see the teachers at the front of our classroom <laughs> smirking, going, bloody Mr. Tate's at it again. He was incredible. And so in Tate's Weights, he took on a bit of a, um, what's the name of that guy, the I command you to grow biceps dude? Alex, you know what I'm talking about? C.T. Fletcher? Yeah, he would take on like an almost C.T. Fletcher-esque personality. And he was just this crazy taskmaster running us all around. And at the time, I was scared shitless of him because I was like, fuck, if I don't do this properly, I'm going to do another 25 heel sprints and like I might die. (laughs) And I truly believed that in my heart. But then I would leave these sessions and 20 minutes later, I'd be thinking back going, fuck, he got me good. That was really funny. Anyway, he was incredible. But the point is, that was a big... Big tangent, but the point is, we all we all knew who the teachers were who were jacked and strong, and in some ways they also were like um, they were kind of guiding lights to us who were beginning to be interested in lifting weights and fitness, um, and they they sort of just subtly introduced us to the iron game. For you, when you were teaching, did you have any interaction with students around fitness and lifting yourself? Because I presume the odd one was like, oh hey, you know, Mister Hall bench presses 180 or something while you were doing it yeah you know uh, i think there there were a few kids that are, that always asked we didn't have a gym at the school right it was a really small school um it was the town i was living in at the time about 500 people and then they would just bus people in from all the little towns that were surrounding it um you know like it, very very small so the nearest gym was about half an hour away um so i'd drive to that in the evenings and then come back but I'd see students there every now and then, like, you know, they'd be doing the same thing as me and just you know, giving, giving them advice and stuff and you know, just helping them out. And there'd, there'd always be a few at the school. They'd be like, oh, you know, like, what do you think I should be doing? Or like, is this good? I'm like, yeah, man, it's sick. Like, keep going, like, keep doing it. Um, I, we, we definitely didn't have the Tate's Weights experience, but I don't know. I, I think it was good. And especially there was a few kids that, you know, were obviously um, – a little, not as athletic that I, I w- would ask me questions about the gym. And I guess I, I just hope in some way that I normalized it for them. And it was like, Hey, like you don't have to be playing footy every weekend to go to the gym. If you want to go to the gym, just because it's something you want to do, then go nuts, like go do it. Like I, I want you to go do that. The same, like, you know, I got a couple of the kids to start listening to like tool and got a couple of the kids to start watching like, I'd probably get in trouble for this, but like Game of Thrones, because I was just like, it's awesome. Like if you want to listen to it, go listen to it. You don't need to listen to X, Y, and Z. You can do whatever you want. Just just do it. And if you like it, just lean into it. Man, we've got Shakespeare. We've got prog music. We've got sword and yeah. sorcery <laughs> fantasy. Like this is an episode of culture. I'm... I'm a massive nerd. So just, yeah, let me at it. No, that's, that's sick. So... I imagine it was quite fulfilling for you then to be interacting with these kids. And I imagine that particularly teaching something like history would be good fun because history and English are both, you know, largely to do with storytelling um, and Mm. interpretation. So when did you begin to move towards the fitness space? What prompted that? Yeah, I I mean, teaching itself is fun and I I like the kids. I, I want to always make it clear, like I didn't move on because of the kids, but Something that you're never prepared for is how like deeply bureaucratic schools are. And that's just the system, right? It's just the way it is. And I think you, you go through university and it's like you're, you're sort of running on the fumes of 
wanting to be inspiring and, and wanting to help change people's lives. And then you show up and it's like, okay, here's your line manager, here's your lines, you need to do this many meetings, you need to go do this, you need to like negotiate with this and do this paperwork. And it's like, shit, like no one ever told me about this. And I, I just, it, it just wasn't what I signed up for. Like it, it just wasn't what I signed up for. I think that's the easiest way for me to put it. You know, it was like a very political uh, landscape that I wasn't prepared for at all. You know, up until that point, I'd really only worked in, uh, worked on farms, bakeries, pubs, you know, it's like nothing on that. And I, I just didn't want to, I, I didn't want to do it. You know, I, I sort of was like, do I want to be doing this for the rest of my life? Um, I don't think I do, you know, I, I, I could like the wages are, are decent. Um, I like the kids, but is this something that I really want to do? Is this what I love? And I couldn't come up with a good answer for continuing to do it. So I just stopped. I, I got to the end of my contract and, and I just thanked them. I was like, I, it, it's just not for me. I don't think I can do this. And um, ended up moving back to Adelaide. Uh, I, I, I went and saw The Secret Life of Walter Mitty on Boxing Day when I got back to Adelaide. And after I walked out of that movie, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but it's basically like a guy that works in a building and just like has, I don't know, pretty crappy mundane sort of job and then just decides to throw it all in and travel the world. I was like, that's the best shit I've ever seen. Um, Sold all my stuff and used all that money to buy a ticket to Canada. And that's pretty much just went from there. Like I, 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 you know, I've been training for like 13 years. I, I used to work out in my mate's shed in his backyard. And that's how we started was like, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of bodybuilding and we would like open it up and be like, 10 exercises, let's go and just crush ourselves on it. And, you know, there were so many days where I like couldn't like move my arms. It'd be like a Thunderbird. Like I, I just couldn't move at all. Um, so they should have that, a, you know, They should have a copy of that in your bedside table when you check into a hotel. Like Yeah, like a Gideon's Bible, yeah. 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 But, <laughs> but I was thinking more instead of the Gideon's Bible, but for the sake of inclusivity, maybe just both. Yeah. Use the, <laughs> use the Bible as a foreword and then follow it with the like, you know, this is how the, you build your stuff. arm. Yeah. yeah. Go the on. Bump. So um, yeah, I, I wound up in Canada. I was managing a pub over there and I hated it. And so I quit that. I, I ended up like, I got a gym membership and I was working out one day. And then as I was walking out, they were doing like a recruitment fair for another gym that they were opening up um, just down the road. They're like, hey, have you ever thought about becoming a personal trainer? And I was like, yeah, I guess. Like I, I'd always considered it, but I was doing my teaching degree and it just seemed like like a really protracted program in Australia for whatever reason. I didn't really want to do that at the time. Um, yeah, they asked me, hey, do you want to be a PT? I'm like, yeah, of course I've thought about it. And they gave me an interview on the spot, told me how to get my cert. And it's a lot faster in Canada, I'll tell you now. It's a lot faster. And... Um, offered me a job on the spot and I've, I've pretty much been training since like I, I've just been doing that ever since. So I think I set the Australian record for getting my fitness certs. Um, 
because there was a condensed Cert 4 intake that I think was running for four weeks total. And I didn't have a Cert 3, I think 12 days out from when that started. So I called the, <laughs> I called the company and said, can I enroll in the Cert 3 online? And they said, yeah, if you can finish it on time. And so, and I was on placement for uni at the time. And I think in the space of eight days, I did my entire Cert 3 online because I just didn't look at any of the materials. I just did the tests <laughs> and then put it in and got my Cert 4. So that was very, very quick. It's probably not the best, probably not the best recommendation for me as a coach. But in the five or six years since, I've, I've learned that the knee bone connects to the shin bone. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, I've gotten way better since then. <laughs> yeah, well, when, I was, <laughs> when I started, I was a fuckwit, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, so you moved into personal training. What I, I feel like every PT, like jokes aside, I was coming from an academic background. So when I started personal training, I was drawing very much from my background in sports science and some experience working with clinical populations through placement, which I don't think actually served me well, but it was something it informed how I approached PT. I presume that you as somebody who'd been teaching people for a long time were informed in your practices by what you did in the classroom. So I'm curious what specifically you drew from A to B there. Yeah. Um, lots of energy, right? Lots of energy. If you, you can make anything sound exciting, if you're excited about it. And I mean, anything like there, there was some stuff that I used to have to teach um, you know, you have to teach way back when we're, we're like any subject. I remember having to teach people how to do like an assessment of a cooking show. And it's like, fuck, I have to make this exciting. <laughs> um, the same thing with this. It's like, okay, like how do I make dead bugs sound awesome? Um, because they're not, and I have to really sell this. So it was just like lots of energy, but, uh, I, and another thing as well as that I think when you when you're teaching and you're always trying to convey ideas in different way in the same way where it's like you're, you're always trying to trick people into learning right you, you you're like essentially like you said it's like I want to teach taming of the shrew let's show them 10 things I hate about you and that's kind of the approach that I take with this it's like you, you just think more ab abstractly and, and start to make more analogies so that people can get it you know I don't I, it's like how do I get people to think about pronating and internally rotating, you know, like push your foot down really hard into the floor and then drive it to the wall, something like that. It's like, just think about some different ways that you can communicate information that's easy for them to digest that they really understand immediately on their level and, and that gets the result that you're chasing. And I, I think something else, I, I probably actually think that this is the most important thing is like when you're teaching, if the class doesn't get something, it's not the class's fault. It's your fault, right? And it doesn't matter how awesome you thought your lesson plan was. It doesn't matter how passionate you are uh, about that thing. If the class says it sucks, then it sucks. And that's how I looked at coaching was like it's my responsibility to make sure they understand this and if they don't understand it i need to get better as their coach so i can't blame them for my sort of lack of an ability to connect and communicate with them so it, it, it's pretty much always on me i can't make somebody care but i can i can definitely make somebody understand 
And if I'm missing that level of understanding, it's, it is my fault. So something that we hear about teaching and particularly with teaching students or young kids is that like people learn in different ways. Is that mm-hmm. something that helped you then in coaching to teach people to, who learn in different ways so that I'd be able to identify, you know, those trends? Uh, yes, yes and no. I think like sometimes you can, you can kind of hear it in the language that people use sometimes, you know, it's like little subtle things where they'll say like, you know, I see what you mean probably means that they're a little more visually inclined or, you know, I, I hear you, you know, maybe they're a little more auditory, but I think that I, I, I don't try as much to nail down one particular type of learning for people because I think people just kind of like uh, sort of like oscillate between a lot of them depending on the task you know I might need to um, block out all noise and really look at words on a page for me to understand like a, a word puzzle whereas if I'm being taught something physically I probably just need to look at someone doing it uh, I don't I don't think people, sort of conform completely to one that pro- probably with most training, it's a little more kinesthetic and, and visual. I think people tend to need like that. Like if you, if you get people thinking too much and if you give them cues, I think it's really confusing and overwhelming for people. Whereas if you sort of tap them a little bit on the elbow or on the shoulder and then show them what you mean, they, they tend to, get it a lot quicker. And I think it's just because people are using their bodies when they're under the bar. I'm glad you said that because you, you segued very well into what is my next question, which is, <laughs> which is about the difference between conveying largely semantic knowledge in the classroom. Like I presume if you're teaching history, there's some skill involved in interpreting sources, but you need mm-hmm. to know, you know, what, what happened at the Treaty of Versailles or whatever. Um, so that's that's a lot of semantic knowledge that you're conveying, whereas in fitness, we're really trying to convey procedural knowledge. We're trying to sort of guide experience. And even though people do develop some semantic model of what they're trying to do, our end goal is really just, can you do this task? Mm-hmm. And can you learn to train effectively? So for you, was it a bit of a shock moving from trying to more convey information to just get people to do stuff? Or did you find that it was actually quite a similar experience to what you already did? No, it was different for sure. I think it was quite different. Um, and again, you, when you're a teacher, you, you, you do lecture a lot. And I think that the model is moving away from that now as it probably should but you lecture a lot. It's almost like radio sometimes, like no dead air. Like there always has to be something that they're doing. Everything has to be structured. Every single minute has to be filled. And I think with coaching, it's it's kind of better to let there be a little negative space sometimes because you just need to let people sit on it, right? You just need to let it sort of simmer and and sort of grow with them. And if you try to fill that space you you interrupt that process i think and so that's something i had to learn not to do was step back and just let them sit on it and and just kind of shut up (laughs) probably be better for it when i began coaching 
particularly because I came from my academic background, um, as evidenced by my ability to just answer the Cert 3 tests without, <laughs> without doing the material, um, because I came from my educational background and because I fell into the trap that lots of young coaches fall into, which is that you feel like you demonstrate value by demonstrating knowledge. I think I spent far, far too much time trying to convey semantic knowledge to people who just didn't give a fuck. Mm. Um, and, and the second I stepped back from that and focused more on like, how many ways can I give you or how many chances can I give you to experience this movement and begin to develop your own model and in more of like a dialectic approach, let you tell me what, what is going through your mind and see if I can just use my knowledge to help plug those gaps or show you new things yeah. to form your own model. The second I did that, I became so much more successful. Um, mm. But it was hard for me to hard for me to bridge that gap between what I value and what I think about, which is all up here, and what they're here for, which is you know more or less below the neck. They've got to be moving, you know. I think it's also hard, right, when you acquire. Um, I, I, I've always been fairly athletic, and so there's always been you know I've never had anyone have to teach me how to jump or or run or you know anything like that it's just come very naturally to me and i think sometimes it comes so naturally to us that we forget that there's a lot of people that it does not come naturally to and you you need to and i think that's why a lot of the coaches in the industry probably do tend toward that more semantic understanding of things or explanation of things is because we do forget that a lot of the physical and kinesthetic stuff it came naturally to us but it doesn't mean it's coming naturally to everybody like we actually need to meet people where they are and we we need to assume that they probably don't have that and that's that's probably the best place to be starting totally um again you're like king of segues have you got our session um our podcast plan open in front of you? <laughs> this um, is actually my podcast yeah i'm starting to think that yeah. you <laughs> this is classic like english or history teacher stuff or he's written his essay plan and he's going right we're going to talk about this then this then this then this and then you know i'm going to make a statement give you an example tie it to my broad thesis thing <laughs> No, um, you mentioned learning difficulties and I, I actually have a question written down about troubled students mm -hmm. um, because I'm sure that when you were teaching, there were some kids who were just struggling to pick things up who needed yeah. a little bit of extra work. Um, and with that, I'm sure comes some obstacles to teaching. Maybe they just don't believe they're as apt or they need to trial different strategies. Did you find parallels between those troubled students and the types of things that you would have to do or the types of discussions you'd have to have with trainees who you know, unlike you weren't as gifted kinesthetically? Yeah, I think just being more patient with them. I, I, I really think, and it's the same thing with troubled students academically or, or people that aren't picking these physical things up very quickly. I really think the key there is just a bit of, and it might sound very Disney, but it's it just self-belief, you know, like just having that, that person be there to say like, it's okay that you got it wrong. Like, it's all right. Like, like if I'm going to be honest, you're probably going to get it way more wrong, way more times. And that's okay because you're still going to get stronger every time. You know, I guarantee you, I'm still going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm okay with you doing that. And we're going to make sure that we get to, you know, we get through this no matter what it is. Like a lot of people, you know, one of my newer clients really struggles to sort of body weight squat. And it's like, 
How could I be frustrated with them? It's it's their first time doing it. You know, all they need right now is support. I know if they keep showing up, they will get better. They will get stronger. It's the same thing with this kid. It's like, I know if I can keep them coming to the class and I can keep my behavior really consistent with them and just keep that support there, they're going to get smarter. They're going to get better. Like I, I know it. I, I just know it. They're, they're going to get better. Maybe they'll never be the best performing person in the world, but they don't need to be. They just need to be like, you know, it's like the, the example that I use is like that they maybe don't need to be the best ever, but everything's relative. So if I gave 10 bucks to any of you, you'd be like, okay, cool, 10 bucks. But if I give 10 bucks to like a little kid, like a, a six-year-old or something, they'll think they're the richest person in the world. So if I can give that bit of belief to someone that they can do something, it's it's just as valid. And, you know, that's that's what I think people need. Alex, um <clears throat> I, I'm curious if your if your experience and intuition with this is the same as me. I think when you have people who have a bit of a track record of failure, the stories they begin to tell themselves, a bit like what Sam said with that lack of belief, the stories they begin to tell themselves almost cruel their attempts at improvement. Um, I have, in fact, I've got a reasonably new client now who used to be a very high level rower and he's like, he's an athletic guy. He moves well and he's learning very quickly. But he came in making quite a lot of technical mistakes in his lifting and he was very determined to get better. But because he's got this athletic background and just confidence that he'll just get better if he plays around, mistakes don't really bother him. Like mm -hmm. he'll do something, there'll be an enormous fuck up and he kind of laughs it off and goes, all right, better try again. Yeah. And because of that approach, the guy just gets better like week on week at a quite astonishing rate. He's He's got some talent. And then I have some other clients who've been lifting for quite a long time and are from the outside looking in actually pretty good, but they've told themselves enough times that they're not particularly apt or that the errors that they make are embedded mm -hmm. and that they'll probably never resolve them. And because of that, errors are overweighted for them. You know, when they make a mistake, they don't see it as being still a 95% of it's a hundred percent possible value contribution to their improvement in strength. They just see it as, that's a net negative. And, and those beliefs end up, like you said, Sam, limiting your ability to get better over time because you slowly disinvest or you don't, just, yeah, you don't get back in the process and, and try harder and harder. Mm -hmm. And so one of the hardest things is guiding those people who have the belief that they are bound for failure, guiding those people back into continual reinvestment of effort and a focus on the positive so that they can build up the self-efficacy and self-esteem that allows them to just go through that cycle of improvement over and over again without continuing to experience those barriers. Mm. I imagine teaching in the classroom, you'd have kids who have failed every test where the first time that they feel themselves struggling to grasp a concept, go, fuck, I knew it. I'm shit at this. Yeah. I'm always going to be dumb or whatever and fail. Yeah. So the reason I directed this to Alex is, you know, I know you've also worked with youth athletes and things as well. How do you find when you have those people who who are really deterred by failure, how do you sort of try to get them back on track or get them moving again? I think with um, sports athletes, it's you, you you notice whatever you look for and this applies to when you watch sport, even professional sport. If you have a particular bias towards a player where you 
you know, maybe really like that player or maybe really dislike that player, when you watch them play, you're going to notice all the things that confirm your bias. So if there's a particular basketball player that I don't like, I'm going to make a big deal of it every time they miss a shot or take a bad shot or turn the ball over or something like that. And I think you can like really mindfuck yourself by thinking about that from a personal standpoint. And like, you know, I have some lifters who, you know, really, really overweight, like you said, Will, the mistakes that they make as opposed to the successes that they have. And like, you know, they could do a set of 10 and nine out of the 10 reps are really good. And one of them's meh. And all they remember is the meh rep. And then they think about that set or that whole session, maybe where they did one bad rep in a whole session. And all they can think about is that one bad rep. And it's pretty hard to change someone's psychology like that. But I think like the way that I've gone about, you know, dealing with issues like that is talking about my own experiences. Like I've been lifting for, you know, 12 years now. And I still make mistakes. And that doesn't mean that I'm any worse off as a lifter because I make mistakes. And it also doesn't mean that anyone's ever really going to be perfect. Like I don't know a single lifter out there, not the best lifter in the world who doesn't make mistakes. Like Russell or he squats high in training every now and again. Like I'll get called big, out, Russell. Big, like, big, yeah, <laughs> like big whoop. Like he squats high in training every now and again. But like does that let him, does that let his self-confidence derail no it doesn't and it's like if you can kind of contextualize mistakes in the grand scheme of thing the grand scheme of things i think you can um go about fixing it i think that like we're kind of like not only psychologically driven but kind of like biologically driven to pay more attention to mistakes as well because it's like threat right it's like that's a bad thing stay away from the bad thing and then as soon as you do that, you're like more and more guarded and it's going to get more and more of your attention. The same way people like, um, you know, everyone, everyone wants this like exciting, mind-blowing session. And in reality, they probably have had a lot of enjoyment in their sessions, but they sort of frame it in this way where they're like, no, like, you know, my sessions have been really ordinary lately. And in reality, they probably had just some like a lot of decent sessions and then won the session that was a bit off. And that just gets the the spotlight of attention every time for the same reason. It's like we we do weigh mistakes more because we we sort of have this like threat perception around them, I, I think. And that, that's just what I try to tell people is like the more you kind of normalize your exposure to things, the less threatening they become. It, it's like... Um, uh, Tolkien, Will likes Tolkien. Tolkien said, uh, fear is defined by shape, not substance. That's why he made the ring rates that way, right? So he says that. And it's like, again, it's like the things that you in your imagination are way worse than the reality of the situation. So I think a lot of lifters and a lot of like all of us fall into that trap where it's like, was it actually that bad or are you, it was it just a pretty normal? kind of event and you're not that familiar with it because i guarantee as you get more familiar with that sensation it just won't be as bad like you you'll be okay with it yeah well and there's and also something i had to out. something i had to teach myself and i learned this from basketball and it's called the it's called having a short memory or like next shot mentality or next possession mentality if you make a mistake you turn the ball over or you miss a shot like you can't let that affect the next possession you have to still play the next possession like it's the possession before before you made the mistake. And I think a lot of lifters could take 
advice from this and like if you make a mistake on one rep you know and all that's going through your head is the mistake that you made you're probably more likely to make a mistake on the next rep as opposed mm-hmm. to forgetting it and thinking about all the things that you do well all the things that you do well when you do a, a successful rep and then using that to to help you moving forward so i think like that's that's one way that i've had to deal with it there's also the concept um, that I try and use in my coaching discussions very often of like framing effects. So framing effects are just basically your initial point of reference influences your later evaluations of anything. So, you know, the easiest example is if I go to sell my car and I say $30,000 or nearest offer and I get a an offer of $35,000, I'm going to think I'm killing it. And if I say $40,000 or nearest offer and I get an offer of $35,000, I think I'm doing badly, right? Because my initial frame of reference is lower and higher in the meantime. And from the customer's perspective, their perception of value of the car will be informed by the starting price as well, which is one of the reasons why it might be to your benefit to highball your initial price offering. So, So that's that. And in coaching, you sort of see it come out. If I say to somebody, do a squat set, five reps at RPE eight, and I give somebody an intensity guide of between 100 and 105 kilos. If they do 100 kilos, they see that as the bottom end of the range and might think that they're doing worse if they're that way inclined and so on and so on as well. And you can extrapolate that concept to lots and lots of things, but um, but one way I sort of take something similar in my discussions with clients is the ones who who kind of operate on quite an even keel. If they do a set of squats, and there's one or two reps with like quite overt technical error, I can say, hey, you know, like rep four was a bit of a shakier one. Why do you reckon that was? And they'll say, you know, oh, like whatever. I messed up one or two things. And I go, oh, what solutions to that, you know, could we try? And they say one or two things and we go, sweet, let's give that a roll and see how we go. And they'll go into their next set. Confidence is completely unshaken. They try those things. If it works, they're like, sweet, I learned something. I'm better. And if it doesn't work, they go, ah, bugger. We'll try another strategy, but they're never worried, right? Because mm-hmm. those are the lifters who just have the killer mindset and go. But then you have those lifters who are really shaken by mistakes and say they do a set of five and rep four was shaky. In those sets, I go, man, reps one to three in particular moved really well. Why were they so good? And those lifters will go, oh, you know, those ones are really like focused on this. I go, okay, let's do more of that because I'd love to see more reps like that. And in doing that, I've disregarded the rep that I'm actually trying to fix. But in doing so, you direct them to their successes and reinforce that like your good reps are coming from something you're doing. It's not your bad reps coming from something intrinsic in you. It's just that like here and there, there'll be bad reps. That's number one. And then number two for me, this is particularly true in lifting weights. I'm not sure if there's anything analogous to it in learning history, say. But in some ways, like effort or degradation of form and so on are just part of the game. Like if you Mm -hmm. are doing hard sets and your reps never deteriorate at all, like are your reps really that hard? Like if anything, it's just evidence of the fact that you're engaged in the process that occasionally you'll make mistakes. And the way motor learning works is your body learns to detect and correct those errors better by virtue of you doing them. Mm -hmm. so not only do i expect some mistakes because you are training hard but i expect that those mistakes will make you better and so you can't be so preoccupied with them that you avoid them because if you do that then you never train any harder and you just become a bit of a like push wiener when you're training we don't want that either (laughs) right so technique only gets better when it's challenged 
Exactly, actually, right? It's the only way. Yeah. yeah. Like but again, the- guiding people to have the confidence to go, okay, fuck ups are fine. Let's do it again. That's that's not so easy, you know? Yeah. The, the pinnacle of powerlifting is a 1RM and like rarely does a 1RM look nice and never does a 1RM feel nice. So if someone comes off a set and goes, oh man, that felt heavy. It's like, yeah, well, that's kind yeah, of the no point. Shit. That means that yeah. we're doing, that means we're doing the thing like that. We're doing the thing. Yeah. I, I say that a lot to like a lot of the people that I coach. They're like, man, it feels heavy today. I'm like, yeah, it's, it always feels heavy. Like there, there's no way I'm going to put 200 kilos on my back and have it not feel heavy. It's 200 kilos. Like, of course it feels heavy. It's like, if I asked you to pick up that bag of groceries and for God knows whatever reason, it, it weighed 200 kilos, you wouldn't doubt it for a second that it's heavy. You'd be like, shit, there's some heavy groceries. You put it on your back and for some reason you're like, oh man, it feels heavy today. It's like the same way, dude. Like it's always going to feel yeah. heavy. Just if- you can still put in really meaningful training and just just forget that. Just for, completely forget that observation. It, it really doesn't matter all, all that much. You know, yeah. People ask like what it's like to bench x y and z a number it's like man that moved really well did it feel heavy i'm like yes it felt heavy it felt obscenely heavy Mm. yeah and like if it does feel heavy it means you know we're doing something right like yeah especially the stronger you get like the heavier the heavier shit feels Mm -hmm. and that means again like you're doing enough to get better to lift weights that actually are heavy enough to feel really heavy so when you are teaching high school kids you're teaching a subject, but you're also sort of a bit of a mentor for them for life. You know, you're trying to, you're trying to like raise good young men and women who treat each other civilly and will engage in the world. Well, you have a responsibility to the future generation. Mm-hmm. And in the immortal words of Spider-Man's uncle Ben, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. When you are coaching athletes or, or coaching general population clients and trying to get them stronger, I presume that some part of what you are teaching is bleeding over into broader life skills. Um, How do you try and sort of fold in an approach to just learning and life in general into your, into your coaching practice? Or do you try and actually just keep them separate and say like, we're here to lift weights and whatever you do outside here, doesn't fuss me. No, I mean, it it does fuss me, right? Like that's, that's definitely something that I, I care about in the same way like i'm not i'm not going to sit here and be like i'm the paradigm of morality like you know i'm not infallible i I make mistakes all the time but i i think it's man you got to stand for something right like you're in a you're in a position of authority and and influence for better or worse um i i never try to sort of like imprint my beliefs on people i think that that would be almost like just just not really what we're here to do but at the same time the people that train with us i think are attracted to what we do who we are as people um before they ever really look at skill and and numbers you know i think that people are going to be a lot more attracted to what you believe ethically philosophically morally um and if they align with you on that i I think that it's a more powerful thing to me and i i I really do believe that like we we have such a position of of influence as coaches um it's hard like i 
to me, I think that, you know, like if somebody's making comments or jokes or, or just behaving in a certain way that I don't align with, then I'm not going to coach them because they're, they're also representative of my business and who I am and what we represent, right? So in the same way, it's like uh, you, you get a tattoo you probably want a tattoo artist that really cares about making that tattoo look fucking awesome because you are going to be a living representation of their business and their skill. That's what I want to see from people out in the community is like, how are you actually treating people? Because I honestly don't care if you have a world record, if you're a dick and if you treat people really poorly, I would, I would much rather coach people who maybe never set a record but treat people really well, feel valued, uh, are trying to make a positive influence, trying to create an environment of acceptance and, and understanding and just sitting there and trying to listen to people more. To me, I, I think that that's the, the fundamental of it. And I, I've said it before is like well, on, on your deathbed or at your funeral, not to get too morbid, but on your deathbed or at your funeral, the last thing, the last fucking thing I would want people to bring up is like my bench press. Like, me too. Uh, Let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's the last thing. I don't want people like the opening line being like, he was very strong and he moved weights up and down. It's like, that's what that's what you opened with? Like that's the first thing you thought of with me? And it just doesn't sit well with me. I think... Um... I always laugh at people who like position what we do as lifting coaches or whatever as being like, you know, life coach guru type of stuff, because obviously that's not what we're doing. I'm teaching people the skill of lifting mm -hmm. weights, but <clears throat> we like, we always do speak about the elements of, of this process that are transferable to other things. That's why it's such an enriching process to go through. I don't think I would be sufficiently motivated or interested in lifting weights to invest the large part of my life that I do in it. Were it not for the fact that it had broader meaning to me. Yeah. Because like, 100%. Like, yeah, I'm not sufficiently vain and I'm not sufficiently talented. <laughs> like I need, I need something more. Right. Um, but when I talk to my clients, I so often learn things from their experiences in life or their experiences in work that can either make me a better coach or a better person and so on too. And so one of the big things, particularly over the last couple of years, I've tried to sort of think about a little bit in, in my service model is like, how can I give people experiences that will help make them more apt learners or more confident or whatever it happens to be, whether it is in what we do or away from there. And again, I don't take it upon myself to be like, Hey, you know, maybe you would be a more successful uni student if you took these strategies and so on. But I can kind of like give them the chances to experience those things. And I do, you know, going right back to the start of this discussion, talking about how enriching it is to see people sort of begin to grasp things and grow in confidence. I do get a huge kick out of when my clients start telling me about something in their life that their process of training has really helped with. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, while I don't at all market myself as someone who's going to fix your life because fuck no. knows I can't, yeah. <laughs> I like... I still do think part of what we do has that effect on people. And like you said, modeling good behaviors, setting good standards for people. And again, having a manner of teaching that, that does reinforce to people like, Hey, this is you doing this. Like 
you can achieve things through conscientious effort and engagement with the process. I think that that is like a huge gift to give people. And it has importance, again, far beyond your ability to bench press or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely not a guru. I'm a strength coach, right? I'm a strength coach. But if my clients need someone to listen to them and they're having a tough time, I'm going to listen to them when they're having a tough time. Like I, I care about the people as we, you know, many of us do. Um, you care enough about them to sit and listen. And like you said, I think through that process of just just thinking like, how can I be of service to this person and, and how can I improve improve their life? Like I, I think there's such a broad sort of broad area of ideas and, and things you can do. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I am a strength coach, but you, you can accomplish some some really profound things in within strength coaching for your clients and for yourself if you take the time to listen you you've begun in the last couple of years to mentor other strength coaches Mm -hmm. and i imagine it's much more tangible like (laughs) when you help other professionals and you can actually just see their business improving that's a much more tangible measure of hey i helped you yeah. Then somebody, <laughs> oh, you like when somebody benches yeah. 70 and then they're like, fuck, my life has turned around. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, didn't expect that, but that's good. Um, but, but when you've begun, when you've begun mentoring, um, I presume you were getting a lot of that kick. Um, what motivated you to begin mentoring other coaches? Uh, it, it just felt like the next natural progression for me, particularly with newer coaches. Like I, I, I feel like, Newer, pardon me, newer coaches get a bit of a bum steer in the industry and in that I, I feel like a lot of the time they kind of fall through the cracks and they're, they, they almost seem like they're not really specifically catered to in a constructive way. Where it's like if you're a new coach, you probably don't know enough to be able to do this course. And then the only course you do have is like kettlebell, dragon style, whatever, and like boxing I don't even know. And it's like, shit, I don't want to know that. Like that's, it's garbage. Like I don't want it. And I'm not saying all kettlebell movements are garbage. I'm just like using it as an example. It's like the certs at entry level are just not very good. And it's like such a massive disparity between those two things. It's like, I I don't want to do that because I feel like I'm above that level, but I'm not quite there yet either. What, what do I do? And I, I remember being in that position myself and, and certainly my background as a teacher, uh, I, I just, again, like felt a, felt a responsibility to start to fill that gap because we can always sit and, and sort of say, you know, throw stones at that situation be like, oh man, this sucks. Like, look at how funny that cert is. And, you know, oh, it's not very good. We all did bad certs and we all have, I've done some shockers. But it, I think it's another thing to just kind of step up and be like, okay, I'm going to fill that gap. Like there, there's, there's very much uh, a void there that needs to be addressed and I'm, I'm just going to do it. Like I, I'm, I'm going to structure some stuff together here that I think I wish that I had learned and been guided through uh, when I started and I'm, I'm going to see what people think. And I, I feel like it's just developed from, from there. That's really the thought process that I had with it. So what are those knowledge gaps that you mentioned, like specifically? I, I think that like 
you know, you, you want to be a strength coach specifically, and this probably applies more to strength coaches than um, maybe like athletic performance coaches, you know, sprinters, things like that. But it's like you, you go through your tests in, in these certifications that get you your PT certification. It's like you're getting asked like, what what does the left ventricle of the heart do? And it's like, how does that let me teach a squat better? Like, I, I just, I, I don't get it. Like, how does that actually let me understand what's happening with the squat, what my client is experiencing and how I can convey that in a better way? I just feel like you, it's like, yeah, this person answered this question, tick the box, here's your piece of paper, you're a business owner now, go away. And it's like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So to me, it was like, let, let's give people what what I consider the fundamentals of things like stress and load management, actually explain what those are and, and how it equates to people and why you probably don't want to throw small off or five by five at like Susie Soccer Mum, who's just come in for her first complimentary session. Like maybe don't do that because of this. And like, let's stop laughing at the people that do do it and actually take the time to explain it to them first and I, I pretty genuinely believe that 99% of people will actually do something else if they're taken, like if someone's taken the time to actually explain it to them um, instead of us like assuming that they'll just absorb it through this like osmosis of all the shit and uh, uh, education that's on in- Instagram somehow. Um, and then like going through biomechanics and just explaining like, internal external rotation and, and again taking the time to explain that uh, a little like you know what is your what do your feet do what do your hands do what do your shoulders do what do your ribs do and then just giving people a better understanding of like here's the anatomy but here's what actually happens when people move and just joining the dots for them like resolving those two things and guiding them through it so that they feel supported right? That it's not like, here's this information, here's more information, go. Uh, I I think people just need someone in their corner or or generally someone that they can just message and be like, hey, I'm I'm a bit unsure. What do you think? And just give them permission to explore it. And then of course the business stuff, which, which blows my mind. The fact that like you, we, we're told that with a PT cert, you're a business owner. It's like, dude, no, like there's so much you you need to understand about a business and again like more more people would probably benefit from running their coaching business more like a i don't want to sound wanky here but more like a, a ceo than as a coach because it's like think about what business owners are doing and think about what they are doing not only on the back end with their systems but how are they conveying information how are they communicating what stories are they telling what narratives are they telling this is what drives me mad about seeing here's my day of eating here's what i ate today it's like who does that help right you know like and i I don't blame those people because it's to me it's the system right it's a it's what we've allowed it's what we've permitted and i i try not to it's as frustrating and silly as those posts are i don't blame people for it and again, that's why I was like, I'm just going to try to help people. I'm just going to try to guide them through the myriad of mistakes that I've made over the last seven years and, and made better because of my experience with them and give them a better start. I watched the My Day of Eating stories 
with the most judgmental eye of all time for reasons. <laughs> Firstly, because I am a dietitian, so I feel I like know. yeah, I, I haven't dropped that in like a year on the podcast, but just a reminder you, that I am. I think so this is about the thousandth time you've mentioned it on the yeah. podcast. That's true. Minimum ten an episode. I mentioned that, but um, so obviously I'm qualified in that respect, but also. This is coming as somebody who cannot present a plate of food to save their life. If your presentation in the photos is not immaculate, I just think like you're a fucking degenerate. <laughs> and <laughs> you if you're if you don't have the most outrageously gourmet food selection across your day, I also think you're kind of boring. So like if you're gonna so you're, step you're up to the plate, to see and like Crockenbush, and absolutely, uh, yeah. like like your day of eating better be the most impressive day of eating because like it's pretty fucking mundane to me to plan my own lunch. So just to look at yours, not caring unless it's <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. At least I get to taste my food. Yeah, that's it. I'm guilty of sharing everything I slow cook on the internet because you know I want people to know that like I have a smidgen of domestic yeah, skills. I'm but- at that point where I'm into slow cooked meats now. That, that's oh, where I am as an adult. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We're going to tag Scott Morrison in this episode. Everyone deserves a slow cooker from the government. Like if we need a post-COVID economic stimulus package, slow cookers, everybody, that'll get people in supermarkets, but it'll reduce the number of times you go to the supermarket because you can cook you know, a week's worth of food. So less COVID, more slow cookers. We're, we'll have that talk later. You really um, thought about this. Oh, deeply for a long time. Trust me. I spent 15 weeks putting together the policy pitch when we were locked down. No, thinking about um, education broadly, um, Alex and I have spoken about this a lot. A lot of the most valuable lessons I've learned, and this is true as a coach and as an athlete, are the lessons I've learned through my mistakes. Mm -hmm. And one of the hardest things that I found in writing my mentorship program for myself was like, I didn't want to just say to people, this is exactly how I do it. This is exactly how you ought to do it. Take this and just go. Yeah. Because one, you don't really understand unless you get a chance to have a dry run at things. And two, I don't actually think it's in my interests to create a whole bunch more of me. Mm-hmm. What I want to do is equip people with the broad knowledge to sort of you know assimilate a body of evidence and reconcile their experiences so that they can come to good conclusions, which will often be similar to mine. They might not always be the same but give them that and actually give them chances to articulate their experiences and resolve ambiguity in their thinking. Um, And so in structuring my own mentorship, I was very much like, you know, like I said, plenty of deep foundational knowledge, all of that. But then I really wanted to leave people with questions of questions or say like, Hey, these are my observations. This is how this stuff relates to it. Like, you know, what does it say to you for, for yourself as a mentor, um, were you thinking more in in that sense of like I still need to give people the chance to to go out and do things their own way, or were you very much like a don't make the mistakes I made person? Kind of both. Um, you know, I want to show people the mistakes I made, and I'm very open about what those mistakes are. But I also want to normalize that, right? Normalize that. It's like I, I'm telling you what my mistakes were, not only so that you can avoid them, but so that you can understand that everyone makes mistakes and you will make mistakes. It's like, um, you know, you, you, uh, there, there's a coach that I spoke to a few weeks ago and they're really upset that like one of their clients had pulled up quite sore in their back. Like this coach was dejected, okay, dejected, upset, cares very much about their clients, very sore in their back. And 
I, I don't know, like my advice to them was you've hurt a client before. And they're like, what? And I'm like, you've hurt someone before. Like I guarantee it, you, they just didn't tell you. And they're like, oh, okay. And then we just kind of talked through like what had actually happened in, in the same way. It's like, I, I tell people the mistakes I've made. I tell people the, the sort of things that I've done wrong. And that certainly informs what I teach. But like you said, my nightmare right, is having an army of Sam's walking around like, God, I don't want that. I, I want people to be themselves. I, I, I want, it's like, I want you to be the best possible coach because something you offer is genuinely your perspective of the, the world. You know, we don't see things in the same way. I'm just going to give you the tools to question things, to think a little more broadly um, you know, make that sort of keyhole that you look at the world through a little bit bigger. And I'll be here to talk about any issues that pop up and, and discuss them with you. And I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, the, the it depends smokescreen kind of coming down. It, it's like it, a lot of these things do depend, but let's actually discuss why and, and what they are and try to come up with a more solid answer for you. You know, like I'm a, I, I'm a resource for you more more than a, a, a lecturer at the front of the room saying like good or bad. It, it's like, I just want to know what your train of thought is and guide you to what I think is potentially a better practice. When you were talking about teaching, you were saying how ultimately the, the arbiter of whether your lessons suck or not is the students. And when you are a coach, it's very easy to presume that everything that goes wrong in your service is because your clients are bad. Yeah. Um, you know, when I began, and again, I've said this probably more times than I've said I was a dietitian, which I, <laughs> by the way, I am still. Yeah. Um, but I, like, I used to have clients who didn't adhere to their programs or weren't motivated or whatever. And I go, fuck, these people are, you know, they're idiots. Like, I didn't say that, but like, you know, I was like, what? <laughs> What <laughs> I better defend myself, but I was like, what's wrong with these people? Like I'm doing my job. Why won't you do yours? And it took me a while to actually start internalizing some of those problems mm -hmm. um, and go, okay, like actually I could probably do things better. Took quite a lot of reflection. Um, but ultimately I think it's, it's served to make me a better coach. And I continually go through processes of, of, you know, identification of error in either my practice or my demeanor or whatever towards clients. But one of the things that makes me able to do that is, like you said, normalization of mistakes, understanding that it is okay. And partly that has been done by people that I admire in the industry, sharing experiences with me where I sit with them and I go, fuck, that sounds exactly like something I'm going through mm -hmm. and realizing that it just is okay. And I think in fitness, especially, it's very hard to make yourself vulnerable publicly and say, actually, like I really fucked this up and you probably have too, whether it is, like you said, hurting a client or just being a bit of a prick. Mm -hmm. um, because the way that we differentiate ourselves on social media is like, I have to be the most jacked, intelligent, successful coach. <laughs> you know, my clients fucking love me, like whatever it happens to be person ever to stick out from the crowd. You don't stick out by saying, actually, I've been kind of mediocre lots of times. You you need to position yourself as perfect. So then bringing that screen down and going, actually, like pretty average and a lot of things, that's very hard. And having mentors who are able to 
to do that, embrace it in you and say, not only is that okay, but being willing to have these discussions and thoughts are going to make you better and people will appreciate you much more for your honesty. Yeah. It's like, it's I, a very big thing. I admire you yeah. for doing it. I think people, when they try to overstate how awesome something is, I immediately become skeptical. And I actually think that's, that's kind of human nature, right? If I were like, you know, I, I can't even really think of anything or literally anything like car, go to buy a car. There is, there is literally never been a better car than this. Nothing could ever possibly go wrong. It will never break down. Nothing about it is like imperfect. You'd be like, nah, this guy's full of shit. Like it's got to be wrong. I think that it's disarming for us to admit our, our vulnerabilities because we are all vulnerable. I don't care what anyone says. All of us are, and we've all made mistakes. We've all done shitty things that we regret in our careers. We, we actually have. And that's why we like the, the people that are fortunate enough to learn from them are still around. And we, we kind of have a responsibility to teach that to the people that are now coming up. And I, I just think vulnerability is so important because it creates more genuine connection with people. And ultimately that's what we're trying to do, right? Like we're trying to generate discussion. We're trying to generate connection. We're actually just trying to make a difference to people. I don't care how like flashy or, or perfect I seem. I, I'd rather just have that like knowledge that I... I don't know that I actually changed, that I helped someone's life get better, that I changed someone's life in some positive way uh, rather than the facade of perfection, which is fucking exhausting as well. Like the, the perfection thing is exhausting. I remember for so long I felt so uncomfortable, even sharing that I like like beer or that I like whiskey. I'm like, no, I can't show that. Like uh, I can't show that. Like people need to think that I'm perfect. I've got to eat clean all the time. It's like, no. I like beer and I like whiskey and this is what I do and this is who I am. Like that's that's life, man. I have imagined often that it would be difficult for other people to try and, you know, like convey perfection in the way that I just effortlessly do. Um, <laughs> but but it just I comes so naturally, right? I'm yeah, really I hadn't thought that it had gotten to to such an awful degree for you. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I, yeah, it's my cross to bear. No, that's that is a shame. Um, Alex, unless you have further questions, I'd love to rip straight into the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. What do you reckon? Yeah, let's go straight to it. All right, but let's quickly have some transition music. You ready? <laughs> Let's I'm go. clicking a random one. This could be anything. You ready? All right, let's do it. Give it a bit of volume. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that, yes. that one was really underwhelming. So let's go. <laughs> oh, dear. So we're back, we're back with Sam. We actually never left. And uh, we're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Sam, are you ready? I am. Do you know the questions? No, I don't. So, so you just admitted that you've never listened to the podcast before. I did. I'm, I'm I mean, we can wrap it up there. Oh um, no, I have actually. I listened to your podcast recap of Nationals. Oh, 2019. Wow, this guy's a committed listener. It's been two years. He listened yeah. to that one and he goes, "Fuck, I'm not coming back on this <laughs> <laughs> again." No, it's, not, it's not like a you guys thing. I, I, I struggle to like sit down and listen to podcasts like unless i'm on long drives or something it's, it's hard for me 
I struggle to sit down and have a conversation with Alex. It doesn't matter the context. If I'm honest, it's difficult all the time. And long drives are the worst because he is the worst with directions. Like this guy has gotten lost. If you live in Sydney, he lived in Willoughby and I lived in Northbridge. We're talking one and a half kilometers away from each other. This guy would get lost on the way from A to B. Like you could throw a rock from his house and probably hit mine by accident, you know. And That's actually not an exaggeration either. I actually remember specifically in the Nationals 2019 recap, I competed bench only that year. And right at the end of the podcast, you're like, oh, let's get through bench only. No one really cares about this. And I was like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Thanks, boys. (laughs) (laughs) My computer screen is covered in water. You hung around the whole time to hear Will say that no one cares about bench press. Yeah, just decimate me in the final couple of seconds of it. Um, in All one right, of so- my greatest regrets in my whole life, I flew to Uzbekistan. Um, and if you don't know where that is, you're not alone. Um, but it was it was about, I think we were in transit for about 32 hours. Dude, it was, and I flew- it was, it was almost 48 hours. Gross. Well, I f- it was bad. I flew to Uzbekistan to compete bench press only. Um, in the junior division of the Asia Oceania Championships, and I came last. So, <laughs> so you can you can never feel bad about what yeah. you did. Yeah, that makes me feel better. Thank you. Go on. all right. Go on. Alex. All right. So four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Question one: If you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh man. One second I'm... while you're thinking. While you're thinking. <laughs> okay, I, no, I honestly think someone that I find really, really interesting and cool and would probably be great company is Neil, Neil Gaiman, the, the author. Neil, Neil Gaiman, he wrote like American Gods and great Graveyard book. book. Yeah, and a, a ton of other books that I love. And I just think he's such an incredible storyteller I, I would love not only to hear his sort of process, but just like how he kind of views the world. He's got this like really cool, whimsical way of telling stories. Like every time you read his book, it feels like you're kind of around the campfire, like hearing somebody tell it to you. And I, I just feel like it would be so awesome to, to s- s- spend some time with that guy and, and hear him. American Gods was going to be adapted into a television show. I'm not sure if they finished it. Did they finish the whole yeah, thing? It was awful. It was one oh, of the really? worst adaptations. Like, and I worship that book. It is such a good book, but man, save yourself some time. Don't just don't watch it. That's a shame. I um, I also really like that book. One of the great things about it, I don't want to like ruin it for people who haven't read it, but one of the incredible things about it is like many of the or like a large number of the characters are. Uh, gods or deities of different cultures Mm. and the fact that they all act relatively true to their nature and yet the twists and turns of the story sort of still came to surprise me quite a bit um is is really Mm -hmm. interesting like it's as a work of imagination it's quite an incredible one it's a really really good book yeah Um, so good and really well researched as well mm. like he he goes into some incredible depth with I mean, even like through reading American Gods, you you like I learned about the origin of Easter and like the actual origin of it, and I'm like, oh wow, I'm going to research that more. Yeah, there's some great stuff in there. He um he did write a book 
about Norse myth. Um, oh, I don't know so if you've good, read that. It's yeah, it's so great. Good. And realizing it's very sad how many of the how many of the myths and sagas and things are just lost to time mm. is a bit of a shame because you read that book and you're like, this is such a rich, beautiful, like pantheon, you know, to explore. And we've just um, like communicated for thousands of years in the medium of storytelling, which I think is just great. Yeah, it's funny. Um, there's something about Thor and Hercules or Heracles that are um that's really similar where we have this like the pop culture notion of like hercules is strong heroic like romantic all this stuff and in reality he was a drunkard who killed his wife and was a yeah. shit bloke <laughs> and likewise thor you know we think of as like chris as hemsworth. kind of a bit oafy but chris yeah. hemsworth and like <laughs> funny and strong and heroic and although he was like beloved of the gods he was also a drunkard and arrogant and shit bloke when you read um when you read Norse myth as well, it's it's interesting, but it's quite enriching to read that and go far out. Like, you know, life has been Disneyfied quite a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. In that way. Alex, question two. Sorry, we could go Sam, on. Sam, yeah. <laughs> you lost me an author on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. That's all right. Question two. Who's your favorite athlete of all time? Oh. Neil Gaiman played some basketball. Yeah, Neil, <laughs> also Neil Gaiman. Um, man, that's hard. Probably, um, oh, what's his name? One yeah, of the Gracies. No, it's one of the Gracies. It's just his name is escaping me. It's not Hickson. It's he, he, there was a there was a documentary and it was um, Choke and it, it was one of the the Gracies and I can't. Remember Joke documentary. It's, it's a jiu-jitsu documentary. Yeah. Uh, Rickson Gracie documentary is what they say. Uh, maybe it's Gracie Legacy. Um, yeah. The Gracies are the the Gracies are the um, fighters, the aren't they? The family yeah, so like jiu-jitsu uh, masters. Yeah, that's right. So it's Henzo Henzo Gracie. Right? Yeah. So Henzo Gracie, uh, I, I think, is in incredible because he had this one fight i mean he, he's he's an amazing athlete but it, again he was like he was never that talented he doesn't look like a particularly athletic guy uh, but i remember he had one fight and uh, somebody put him in a shoulder lock like this incredible japanese wrestler put him in a shoulder lock um broke his shoulder and he's just sitting there like completely calm as a coma and didn't tap or anything they eventually stopped the fight so like like we're probably going to have to amputate this guy's arm if we let this fight go on. So he's not going to tap. And he, he just said like, that was the worst and most blinding pain I've ever been in my life, but I was never going to give my opponent the satisfaction of screaming. And I was like, Holy shit. (laughs) You are, you are awesome, man. Like I, I don't know what it takes to get on that level, but, Jesus, I respect that guy. But he's such a scrappy dude, but an amazing jujitsu athlete, and that kind of mindset is just next level. Then there's guys who think they're going to war when they do a powerlifting comp. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's right. I, I aspire to lots of things, but that level of toughness, it, that is not something that I it, particularly it, it want. It is genuinely beyond me, right? Mm. Like, you know, I, I, I can't comprehend what it's like to just like be in so much pain and just be like, no man, I'm fine. Like keep this fight going. I'm ready. It's like, Jesus, <laughs> like that, that's, that, that's astounding to me. 
Sam, which movie or television character do you most um, do you most represent? Resemble, resemble, yeah, resemble physically or otherwise in any respect you want. Uh, easily, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, just all this, you know, definitely. Uh, man, I, I don't even know. Like, phew, uh, you guys tell me. Um, Aren't they making a big a Chris one. Hemsworth, by the way? Aren't they? They're making like a statue of him in Tamworth or something ridiculous like that. No, there was a news story. I'm going to pull it up and tell you because um, he was um, Chris Hemsworth's statue. Um, something ridiculous. Small Australian town plans massive Chris Hemsworth statue. Thor actor has agreed to visit a small town in Australia um, after a hilarious campaign ask them to become their local ambassador. It's Cowra. You know, the Cowra races in what New South Wales. Um, posted a video with the slogan, get Chris to Cowra. Um, and he saw the campaign and said it warmed his heart and made him smile and said he'll be visiting as soon as possible. They're going to build a huge statue of him to celebrate his new role as the Cowra ambassador. This what? is it's an absurd uh, story. I'm sure he's going to spend a lot of time in Cowra. Well, I mean... <laughs> It's a ridiculous story. So are we going, that's your official answer. No, no, I think like um, probably something like old man Kratos in like God of War, just way less physically devastating than he is. I think just like, I'm like for the most part, like I I don't mind talking, but I like to be fairly quiet and reserved a lot of the time. Like Alex knows like he's coached me in some meets. Like I tend to just sit on my own and not, say very much at all i tend to just be pretty quiet so i'm, I'm gonna go with like old man kratos from later in the god of war series sure all right final question if your life was being made into a movie montage and you got to choose the music that it was set to what music would you choose <laughs> uh i would want something really funny I, i'm trying to think like something that would like not probably like not fit me in any way at all and just make people laugh like seek and destroy by metallica or something seasons, seasons in the abyss by slayer and just have it not fit at all where it would be probably my choice and just throw people off completely because if i can make people laugh i don't know one more time i'd be okay with that so you'd want sort of like some jarring disconnect between like a reasonably mundane set of clips. Yeah, and like yeah, that's just right. Just, just not make any sense. Yeah, maybe like um, Rocky Like a Hurricane. Great that, song. That could also be a, a good choice. Just, Fantastic you know, me, song. Me sort of like cooking in my kitchen and just, yeah, Rocky Like a Hurricane going on full blast behind that, really framing it well. When I was in my teens, um, I used to ride mountain bikes and I can't remember. There was a series of, there was a series of mountain bike films. I, I did a bunch of like a niche extreme sports and mountain biking was one, but there was a series of films. And in one of them, um, they had, this was right when like GoPro style point of view footage was beginning to be a big thing. And so they had this great scene of people doing GoPro style riding through like whistler on all those wooden ramps and mm-hmm. stuff like that and they also had a bit where there was a guy who was on a flying fox and he was filming from above following this biker down this track all this crazy stuff and they had it set to rocky like a hurricane yeah. yes. and completely incongruously somewhere in the middle of it i think when the guitar solo happens 
they had this rider who I think was the feature of this part dressed like as a full hair metal artist air guitaring in the middle of this bike track while they were filming him from above (laughs) hair blowing in the wind, looking ridiculous, just living his like eighties power metal dream. And it was so funny. It was like, it was just so, so good. And so whimsical in that it was just completely unnecessary, but obviously they decided, fuck it. We need 30 seconds of filler. And you know, this fella's, this fella's going to rip it on a guitar, but that was my first exposure to Rocky, like a hurricane. And I was like, you know, like this is all right. Yeah, it's uh, a great introduction. It stuck with me, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the good thing about like mountain biking is kind of like this. Sorry to mountain bikers, but like it's not the coolest extreme sport. Like surfing and snowboarding, people are like, yeah, sick. But if you like do mountain biking or bodyboarding or something, you're not really on the same level of cool. <laughs> so like second you almost, yeah. yeah, you have to kind of like lean into the niche dorkiness of it. So like bodyboarding movies have so many funny bits in them. Because they kind of knew. They were sending themselves up the whole time. They were hilarious. But mountain biking stuff, they killed it. Um, I'll try and find the video. I'll send it to you, Sam. As long as they don't do that sort of like, you know, it's like if there's like a sort of movie montage and something that I'm just like, I so wish trailers would stop doing this is like taking a reasonably upbeat song, putting it on a trailer and slowing it down to make it sound all like dark and disturbing. Like I, I watched the trailer for welcome to raccoon city like the new resident evil movie and do you remember like that song what's going on by three non-blondes yeah so they slowed that down and tried to make it all disturbing and i was like what the fuck am i listening to like this is just there's enough disturbing music just do that it's resident evil like as well like just go get something that fits so yeah please don't do that on uh like on an off topic but on topic note one of my favorite YouTube channels is a guy called William Marancy, I believe, or Marancini, M-A-R-A-N-C. And there's like I-N-I or something after that. Anyway, he does music mashups and some of them are just very short, like meme ones, but many of them are full song edits and they go like the whole gamut, they run the whole gamut between like, actually absolutely banging and making you cringe the whole way through. (laughs) And he has one where he has time by Hans Zimmer, which is obviously iconic Ziz track cut with party rock anthem. (laughs) And you would think that it's bad. He also has, he also has party rock anthem with numb by Lincoln park, both instances. You would think it's bad, but let me tell you, I was so ready to go and muzz (laughs) <laughs> after listening to that i was like oh my god like get me a dumbbell and some very short shorts i'm getting a pump and dancing in my living room like i'll, I'll have to link that one to you as well it pops off if you want to have a song slowed down and made more epic but in a way that's gonna just like get you ready to go that's the one it's Amazing. fucking sick yeah <laughs> sam thank you so much for joining us this has been a pleasure your last job before we let you go Tell everybody who you are, where they can find you on the internet and anything special coming up for you. Yeah, of course. Um, So you can find us on Instagram where we're probably the most active is on Instagram ethos or at ethos strength, E-T-H-O-S strength. Um, Website, very similar, ethosstrength.com.au. 
Um, we have our December intake for the mentorship. So still got a few spots available for that. That runs for 12 weeks. Um, that kicks off on December 1. Um, we still have a few early bird spots, which run out on Monday. So for the rest of the week, we've got some early bird stuff. And then um, we, well, I'm probably going to be hitting the road and doing some seminars in kind of January and February with uh, a bunch of people in a bunch of different places now that we're sort of returning to the before times and borders are opening again. So uh, hopefully be hitting some major cities and, and uh, you know, speaking about uh, a lot of the things we spoke about today as well as biomechanics, programming, you know, the, the other things that sort of help coaches get better. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Will at W.BergmanPT at Delphi Deeper Podcast. I'm going to just quickly throw that one in there as well for people who want not fitness. Um, Alex? I'm Alex at Alex has done a score process and we'll chat to you guys in a fortnight. Peace. Awesome. Cheers.